Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science once again on your radio phone device. My name is Chris and... Look, I've been doing some um, some uh, hardwarey type of stuff lately, you know, helping out, you know, doing some some what, manual like labour. Handy person. Hand, well, not I wasn't being very handy. I was just kind of manual labour sort of thing, and uh, <laughs> wasn't actually involved in this particular exercise. But um, I came, you're looking at a Canon WD40, which you would have accounted if you did sort of you know these sort of. Oh, uh, hardware exercises and that sort of thing. That's the first thing you go for as a handy that person. That is uh, the first thing. And it had me wondering, what exactly is WD-40? And is this an excuse or something to talk about on Lost in Science? <laughs> um, no, I, I, so I'm going to talk a bit about hydrocarbons. And, oh, um, yeah. What, what something like WD-40 is, is made of? Because it's one of those mysterious things that, you know, it's this magical device that you spray and no one quite knows what it is, so I'm just going to try and demystify there WD40. Is, there is, there is the old, uh, the old, you know, handy person. Um, you can fix everything with WD40 or gaffer tape if it's meant to move and it doesn't move. Oh. Yeah, yeah. WD40 will fix it, and if it's if it's not meant to move and it is moving, use the gaffer tape. You've just spoiled my story for next week. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. the gaffer tape. Yeah, science of gaffer tape. What is gaffer tape? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, what have you got for us today, Stu? Um, look, uh, it's it's the end of March. It's just, well, it's here. Uh, it's around here. Uh, anyway, and uh, I was reading a book and noticed that it was a very famous person's birthday on the 31st of March. Oh, and we I love thought, birthdays on this show. Yeah, I, I, thought I, would, I thought I would talk about... His birthday from 420 years ago, that might Ooh. give some people a clue who that is. And also, I stumbled across someone else's birthday who everyone will know his name, but you might not be aware of who he is. So I will come back to those So you're doing birthdays, two, birthdays, two for birthdays for the same day, the 31st of March. Two wow. happy birthdays. I am, my mind is boggled. Well, um, I am going to give everyone an update, a paleo update. I know I'm not talking about the that awful diet where you have to eat berries and raw meat, but um, paleontological update. Yep, yep. Some really like interesting new discoveries in the world of dinosaurs. Because if you don't have a five-year-old kid around to tell you what's going on with dinosaurs, then it's very... It's it's very easy to, to get lose behind track. and lose yeah. track of what is actually going on. Whoa, whoa, so whoa, how... I'm going to give you um, <laughs> three important discoveries that have happened in the last couple of months. How can there be updates on something that is millions of years old? Yeah, breaking be- news on 100 million year old Yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah because on. we keep on digging them up, Chris. Fair enough. Well, okay, that sounds like an interesting thing. Can I just um, have a little bit of wind about um, paleo diet, though? Um, just just before just on that <laughs> just topic. We, we no, this is not. I'm not going to do the usual science thing of it's a whole lot of rubbish. You know, yeah. I'm just going to say how um, you know in this country in that that we live in, you know, in the form of English we use, we spell paleontologist with and paleontology with a diphthong, yeah, like P A L A E O. 
Yep. So I think that your um, paleo diet people should spell their paleo, if they're Australian, should spell it with P-A-L-A-E-O. Otherwise, we can't take them seriously at all. I can So care. that's that's <laughs> for that's for Pete Evans, if you're listening. No. Um, that's what we think. Even if you do, we won't take you seriously. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> On with the show. All right, so... Well, before I get started talking about WD-40, I just want to say that um, we are a community radio station. We do not in any way endorse any particular product, commercial product or or that sort of thing or large corporation. I wanted to say that from the outset. So this is, this is a discussion about a thing that we all, we all use, but it's not saying go out and buy this particular thing. All right, I have received no kickbacks from big... <laughs> Big 40. <laughs> from, from big lubricant. Big lubricant. Yeah. It's interesting though. So yeah, I am talking about WD-40. For those who are, who are wondering, because I was wondering, you know, there's a lot of questions about this you might have. It's not owned by one of the, the big corporations. It's, its own kind of, it's a publicly listed company, but it's a separate company that was um, founded specifically to make WD-40. Do they make anything else? No, they, well, they've acquired apparently some other brands recently, okay. but they... Um, no, are they Australian? No, they're American. American. Based in San Diego, I believe. They were originally called the Rocket <laughs> Chemicals Company, but renamed in the 1990s to the WD-40 Company when they realized the WD-40 was the only thing they made and <laughs> they didn't make rockets. So, Or even chemicals for? for rockets. Or even chemicals for rockets. Well, it's good question. But actually, haha, both your questions. Okay, so WD-40, it stands for Water Dispersing Formula Number 40. So the guy who invented it was a guy called Norman Larson. He invented it in 1953. Clearly, this is his 40th go at doing it. It's like, you know, Nescafe yeah. Blend 43 sort of thing. Another product I don't wish we would endorse. Um, <laughs> no but one's endorsing that. No one's endorsing that. But, um, and it was actually made for uh, use on rockets or missiles, this sort of thing, to prevent corrosion. You know, sort of oh. a, you know, kind of a nice coating to prevent corrosion. Because basically what it is, it's an oil. Yeah. In a spray can. That's basically all it is. It's a very light oil in a spray can. It's what they call a penetrating oil in that it's very thin, has low viscosity. It gets into all the nicks and crannies and this kind of stuff. And this mm-hmm. is why your things that don't move previously that should move will move after application of such a product because it gets in the, the little cracks. So that's kind of the basic concept of it, but also it's it's sprayable. So this is where the kind of the secret formula comes in. And it is apparently a secret formula. It is a trade secret. Apparently, when uh, Norman Larson invented it, he didn't patent it. Because when you patent something, you've got to give away the formula. You've got to say what's, you know, what it's made oh, from. So someone could have just copied it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So he didn't patent it. Does that mean it's still not patented? So, no, they did not patent it. Um, the window of opportunity for patenting it has long since closed. So, yeah, it's not ah, patented. So, so long as they keep it a secret, it's okay. That's right. I mean, there are trouble is there are some regulations around the world that you have to, like, produce some information for, like, safety purposes. Mm. So you have a materials data safety sheet for in a lot of countries. So people sure. have kind of tried but to that... work out what it is. Right. And in 2008, I believe Wired Magazine um, – so 2009, Wired Magazine did some spectroscopic analysis on it to try and figure out what was in it as well because people have been wondering. You know, it's like the, it's like the secret formula thing. You want to know what's in it. Interesting that they use spectroscopy. But anyway, continue. Why? Oh, we'll come back to that later in the oh, show. Oh, another hint yeah. for whose birthday it is on March 31st. <laughs> yes. Okay, so basically, all it really is, as I said, it's a, it's a light oil. But to make the oil really light and able to penetrate, it is diluted. 
particularly with um, a number of different hydrocarbons, but also one that's very light, very volatile, that evaporates. And so it kind of it makes it sprayable. So it's, it's diluted, so it's sprayable. But then that thing that was made sort of really wet and sprayable, not actually wet is the wrong word to use, but really light and sprayable, then evaporates and so leaves the, um, the oily coating that you want mm-hmm. for your purposes. Now, but when we look into what these hydrocarbons are, this is where we get into this whole kind of thing of organic chemistry. And we find that it's basically the same, mostly the same kind of hydrocarbons, just of different sizes. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'm talking just about. Chains. Just, just chains. Just chains, yeah. Just extra carbon it is, essentially. put on the end. It's what, um, what is known as aliphatic um, hydrocarbons or alkanes in this particular, they're mostly alkanes in it. So aliphatic, these are... Chemistry is it's not my strong point. I will freely admit that. And it's full of a lot of funny words, a lot of big words that are used just to, you know, name specific combinations or configurations of atoms and molecules and this kind of stuff. As opposed to physics. Well, it's very useful for chemists, not, <laughs> well, not, that, much, not that useful for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, to defend physics, um, <laughs> I mean, we, we name stuff like, you know, your quarks and your leptons, that kind of just, stuff. I was just thinking, what, what was that quark you were talking about? The before? strange quark the and the charm quark. And the charm quark, When yeah. you have things yeah. like that that are completely outside human experience, you've got to call them something. Yeah. Why not call it a well, family little name? Maybe that's what the chemists are doing. Uh, maybe well. that's what they're doing. I don't know. They're just there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot, I mean, it is complicated. Chemistry is complicated. So you're going to need a lot of words. But anyway, so aliphatic hydrocarbons they are kind of the opposite of aromatic. Well, you've probably heard of aromatic hydrocarbons. It's one yep. of those things that you gets around. And an aromatic hydrocarbon has kind of a ring like a benzene ring. So that's where you have like carbon atoms with alternating single and double bonds in a nice little ring shape. Normally, it would be about six, right? Yeah, yeah. They can have another kind of numbers as well or join together right. rings and that, that sort of thing. But whereas an aliphatic hydrocarbon is just kind of mostly a chain. It's kind of, it can have like loops in it, but they're different kind of things to the yeah, your, um, your aromatic loops. So there's mostly it's only it's chains. And the alkanes, which is what the majority of the hydrocarbons in something like WD-40, according to the, the spectroscopic analysis, are mostly these chains. And the longer the chain, it seems, the, the more kind of heavier it is and the more it's kind of like a lubricating thing. So on the on the far end, when you get a lot of carbon atoms, you get something like your um, your paraffin wax, you know, those kind of yep. things that are in that, like basically your Vaseline sort of substances. Very low viscosity. Very low vis- very high viscosity. Or very high viscosity. Very high viscosity. So you need to dilute them with something else. And so the in that kind of mid range, when you're looking around, they have these gum chemicals like decane and nonane, which has as you say, decane has ten carbon atoms and nonane has nine carbon atoms. And then there's octane which has eight. Octane has eight, yeah. Those oh, ones kind of around that high age. Octane. You get um you have your mineral oils which kind of dilute things. And as you go further down, you get stuff which is it's kind of more uses this is a little bit more as a solvent, more as a dissolving thing. You're probably familiar with it as mineral turpentine. Uh, mm. Those kind of yeah dissolving kind of mixtures. Uh, and right down at the low end, then you get the things that are very volatile and will evaporate, but will also make this nice and, and soft to to be able to spray. It. So that's basically all there is. So you've got your oils, which you lubricate. And also, because it's water dispersal, these are hydrocarbons. These are things that don't have kind of um, – don't mix well with, with water, literally. Hydrophobic. And they, hydrophobic, and they repel water. Because um, as we know, water is a polar molecule. It's got a positively charged end and a negatively charged end, and it doesn't mix well with neutral kind of things like 
your uh, oils and other hydrocarbons. So that's basically all there is to it. It's just a mix of these different alkanes and that kind of stuff of various levels. Some are lubricaty, some are evaporaty, some are dissolvy. And that's basically, <laughs> it's a combination of these different kinds uh, makes this sprayable product. Chris's chemistry. Chris's chemistry. Chris's muddled through chemistry. <laughs> I started reading a book recently called The Age of Genius by a guy called A.C. Grayling, uh, in which he sets out to prove that the 17th century was a major turning point in the history of human thought. And I might maybe talk about the book in a bit more detail when I've actually finished it, because I haven't yet. But it did mention the birthday of one of the most famous philosophers and scientists in history, René Descartes, whose birthday falls on March 31st. And he was born 420 years ago. Wow. Wow. Um, so I was busy looking up his birthday when I found he shares his birthday with another scientist whose name is so well known that you might not even be aware that you know his name. So I'm just going to ask you a question. If you think about a laboratory, what, what sort of equipment would you <gasps> expect to oh, see? Are you... Oh, Bunsen burner? Yeah, Bunsen. Bingo. Bunsen. Or is it burner? (laughs) No, it's the Bunsen burner. Larry burner. uh, The Bunsen burner is obviously an iconic science tool. And the scientist whose name it borrows was a German chemist who was born on March 31st, 1811, called Robert Bunsen. I wonder if he pronounced it Bunsen. Probably did. Probably did. As a German. Yeah. Um, He shared a laboratory with um, Johann Test, who invented the test tube. (laughs) That's not actually correct. But he did give his name to another famous fictional scientist, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. Ah, who's... Um, from the Muppets. Whose psychic is Beaker. Whose psychic is Beaker, who's not named... The Beaker in the lab is not named after Beaker, I think. After, could be. No. Could be. I think he... More research came needed, along, Came along a lot later than Beakers were invented. Yeah. I Got- bet maybe the person who invented the Beaker looked a little bit like a Muppet. Possibly. Or a little bit like a Beaker, like Beaker like does. Beaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Robert Bunsen was the person who first noted that each chemical element burned with a characteristic colour when heated. And his partner in the lab, Gustav Kirchhoff, not, suggested... Not no, not, not Gustav Test. So Kirchhoff suggested that they use a prism to separate out the light from similar coloured flames so they could differentiate further and figure out, oh, yeah, this is a different chemical to what, this what, one. What year was this? This is in the um, mid-1800s. Kind of yeah. Okay, cool. Um, they also then discovered two new elements, cesium and rubidium, by looking at the colour and going, wow, that's yep. not like any other colour. Wow. So they actually systematically were testing things and going, oh, this is this colour, so it must be this chemical. Um, And that indirectly led to the later establishment of a periodic table which took all of these newly discovered elements and said, hey, they have similar properties and they put them in a a row. Including um, uh, the well-known element helium, which was observed in the spectrum of the sun Mm. um, and so named helium after the sun. Before it was found on Earth, it was discovered on the sun. Yeah, because the sun being Helios. Yeah. So uh, it's a pretty important birthday for chemistry, the 31st of March. But poor old Bunsen was to be forever overshadowed by the other famous thinker slash scientist slash philosopher who was born on the same day in 1596. Yeah, he did think, therefore, 
He was. That is true. Now, René Descartes is known as the father of modern philosophy, and for pretty good reason. He was pretty much one of the first people to question the ancient philosophy of Aristotle, which back in the 17th century was still taught as the gold standard of thinking for all the ages. And it was basically, Aristotle said all this stuff, this is true. And Descartes came along and went, well, heaps of it actually doesn't make any sense. So let's, he just scrapped the whole thing and went back to the drawing board and said, I'm going to reinvent philosophy. So Yeah, he, so how, how did he reinvent philosophy? Well, he was, he was living in a pretty dangerous time. So the early 1600s were highly superstitious and the Catholic Church held a lot of power over Europe, even though there was Protestants in the northern parts of Europe causing all kinds of problems and passing lands back and forth between Protestant and Catholic rulers of various provinces. And it uh, came to a head in the Thirty Years' War, which was literally a war that lasted for 30 years between mm. various factions. So in 1633... Descartes was about to publish a book which included theories on the motion of planets, amongst other things, when someone brought him a message uh, about another astronomer who was locked in his house for saying that the planets all moved around the sun, including Earth, and that uh, the Earth was not the centre of the universe. Was that Galileo? So, yeah, so uh, René decided he wouldn't publish that book right Mm, at that time because he'd heard that Galileo had been locked up and he didn't want to end up locked up in his house. So then he turned his his hand to philosophy. And I guess in the 1600s, science and philosophy were virtually indistinguishable. You couldn't really say, well, you're a physicist and you're a philosopher because they were working on such a basic level of understanding that the Mm. physics was Natural philosophy, they called it. Yeah, natural philosophy. It sort of grew out of trying to understand how the world worked and what caused things to happen. So he snuck in watered-down versions of his materialist version of the universe that really still differed quite radically from the divine causes for everything mm. that the church was insisting. Because people talk about accept. Cartesian duality, don't they, mm. being a concept where the, um, the, the, the spiritual world and the material world are separate things. Is that mm. what that is? Well, yeah, and I mean, Cartesian gets applied to a lot of things, but it does come from René's yeah. name, but it's also often applied, I mean, it is given birth to a whole branch of mathematics, so there's that as well. But he, for all of his radical thinking, he was actually wrong about just about everything. Oh, yeah. Um, But the fact that he was challenging the orthodoxy of the time was what made him such an important thinker because even though his ideas were wrong, the concepts that he sort of came up with, actually some of them turned out to be right, but he he got the details wrong, if you like. So the ideas he presented are recognisable in our modern worldview. For example, he felt that the universe could have started from a chaotic state and developed into what appears to be an ordered state over time following a a few simple sets of rules. He didn't know anything about... Thermodynamics. Thermodynamics or what we know as chemistry. He believed everything was consistent of the old-fashioned sort of ancient elements of fire, water, and earth, and air. So his specific details were quite wrong, but his general concepts still bear true today. So he rejected, for example, he rejected the concept of vacuum. He He couldn't imagine a situation in the world that he knew where a vacuum could exist, that is, a space with no matter in it. So he couldn't really envisage what outer space was like because there was obviously a vacuum out there. But he said it may be possible. 
He just didn't have enough evidence, which is another thing that he was okay. really big on, was like, I've got to have more evidence before I can say conclusively what's going on. Um, and he also believed that all matter was connected by continuous what he called corpuscles, mm. which was, you know... Corpuscles? His, yeah, his version of, of, I guess, atoms was these oh. corpuscles, which was everything was connected. But he also believed weird things like uh, that light moved instantly. Mm. So that you know, light coming out from an you know from a from a light source was instantly travelling to the other end of where yeah. it was being perceived. Which um, that it doesn't move instantly. It does have. Yeah, that's a point. It yeah, does. Yeah. It does have a, a speed. At it which does it have travels. a speed, yeah. but that speed is very quick. And yeah. he didn't have the tools back then to. Oh, there's, yeah. There's no way he could have. Yeah. You know. So basically, the important thing that he came up with was that he proposed that the universe could exist and function without external divine intervention, which was pretty radical. Even though the church, you know, said that everything was divine, uh, a divine providence, um, they still took into account these ancient philosophers who they took as these dogmatic rules yeah. about how the, how the world worked. And he rejected all of that and went back to first principles. And probably the most famous philosophical quote of all time is from... Descartes, which is the first principle from which he began his philosophical philosophical exploration, which is, I think, therefore I am. So he's basically saying, I'm aware of my own thoughts, and therefore that's the point at which I'll start from, rather than trying to figure out. He, he, he had a whole lot of um, philosophical ideas about the senses, too. He didn't, he didn't believe the senses were particularly accurate, which was... Uh, kind of going against what philosophers had based their observations on for many hmm. years. He was saying that just because you saw something doesn't mean it happened, really, um, and it's not really a good judge of how the world works because um, our senses are fallible and it's disconnected yeah. from the things we're observing, which is a huge leap yeah. in uh, thought. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say happy birthday to uh, Renee and Robert, and I think the world would be quite an unrecognisable place without either of those two scientists. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. All right, it's paleo update time. And as I said before, not that bonkers diet that everyone is on, but it's... Put down that almond milk. You're not going to need that today. <laughs> Get it's... that butter away from your coffee, damn it. <laughs> oh, what? Okay, all right. We are moving on from the paleo diet. This is dino news, dinosaur news. What is happening in the world of dinosaur discovery and knowledge? Because, frankly, we don't have enough dinosaur updates in our life, really. I mean, I don't. No, I think, I, I think as you said before, people with five-year-old kids would mm. probably have a better handle on dinosaur news than yeah. most yeah. people. Yeah. Now, there's been some big news, and it is news related to everyone's favourite carnivorous dinosaur, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Hey. Hey. Like everyone's favourite dinosaur, pretty much. Oh, no. My favourite dinosaur growing up was the Stegosaurus. Really? Get out of here. Yeah. Okay. Why? Yeah. Because um, they were herbivores, and I like the plates, and oh, they, they were just brains. a bit badass. They had two brains? Did yeah. They have two, do they have, well, do they? brain, really? lump of neurons. I thought they had really, really small brains. Yeah, they have a small brain. Really lumps. small brain. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Know. I don't know. Anyway, um, let us know what your favourite dinosaur is. <laughs> yeah, drop us a line. <laughs> drop us a line. Yeah. Um, now, the breaking news with Tyrannosaurus, okay. Tyrannosaurus Rex is that a pregnant Tyrannosaurus Rex fossil has been found in Montana. What? Yeah, a pregnant 
T Rex. So hang on. In Montana. Very exciting news. Dinosaurs lay eggs, right? Yep. So it's it's carrying the eggs still and it hasn't quite laid the egg. Is that yep. how that works? Yeah, okay. it's carrying the legs. eggs. It is developing the eggs mm. and it is about to lay a clutch of dino eggs. Which are these, are, are these are, eggs still going like, to hatch? Are we going to be infested with Tyrannosaurus rexes? <laughs> the eggs are fossilised. Ah, the bones are fossilised. Okay, the whole pregnant T-Rex is fossilised. So sorry about that. However, it's pretty amazing because we can look more in depth at the evolution of egg-laying dinosaurs and where that leaves us with birds, as well as looking at the sex differences between a T-Rex, a male and a female T-Rex. So hang on. So just to remind everybody, birds, the connection between T-Rexes and birds. Oh, yes. So the closest living relative on the earth right now to dinosaurs, paleontologists believe it is um, dinosaurs. Birds. I mean birds. (laughs) So are birds actually dinosaurs? Do we count them as dinosaurs? Birds are avian reptiles. We count them as avian reptiles. They're not reptiles, surely. No, they are avian reptiles. That's from an evolutionary biologist point of view, they come out as avian reptiles and are more closely related to crocodiles than they are to oh than crocodiles are to like snakes and stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well. Flying crocodiles coming to us. <laughs> Nightmare near you. (laughs) But something that everyone is just going a bit crazy over in the paleontology world Mm. is the possibility that from these old pregnant bones we could find dinosaur DNA, Tyrannosaurus rex DNA. And the reason we're particularly excited about this DNA with the pregnant T-Rex is because of a type of bone that's only present just before and during egg laying. Okay. And so it's only in females. And this is something called the medullary bone. Now, it turns out that both birds and dinosaurs, which, as I said, they're, they're fairly related. closely related, very similar in many ways. And one of these ways is they both share this medullary bone that it's not like a specific bone, but it's if you think about the long bones in a bird, like the like the femurs, um, the drumstick, the drum, <laughs> the drumstick, yep. Um, and think about the inside of the drumstick. That's the sort of marrow cavity. Yep. And inside that marrow cavity is some, is the when they're about to lay eggs. Is right. this medullary bone? Oh, so it's inside the bone. It's inside. It's like a Russian it's a doll type of bone. bone. Of, of bones. Well, it's 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 a type of lining in within the okay, bone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's called like it's called bone, but it's it's a it's so a specific a, type a specific of bone cell. cell type. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the reason they've got this medullary is it's sort of like a spare supply of calcium, so that they can take calcium to create their shells from that, rather than having to Getting rather up. than having to get it from the rest of their bones and yeah. leave them sort of. Without strong bones, yeah, which is what crocodiles do, right? What they want? Well, well crocodiles just leach the rest of their bones okay. to supply their eggs with calcium, but birds use this medullary oh. calcium, sort of like this little mine of calcium. So crocodiles are their weakest story. when they're laying eggs. Yeah, crocodiles are at their weakest when I they're laying. That. <laughs> Survival tip there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, this type of bone could retain this the preserved DNA um, yep. because it, it typically contains a lot more cells and DNA than the other bones do. Okay. So there is a chance that there could be some fragmented T-Rex DNA hidden away in these 68 million-year-old bones. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And just from an evolutionary perspective, this is sort of further evidence that birds are descendants of dinosaurs. And all you have to really do is look at a swamp hen or a brush turkey or something like that. Look at their legs and you can sort of get it. You can pick up on a bit of dinosaur. Look at a cassowary, but not too close. Look at a cassowary. Yeah, Absolutely. Cassowary is definitely yeah. turkeys as well. Yeah. Make sure you're wearing mm. goggles when you look at them because they'll peck your eyes out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Very dinosaur-like behaviour. Yeah. So that's that's pretty amazing news in the world of dinosaurs. That the other the- amazing news is that the world's biggest dinosaur is has just been put on display in New York. So this is a titanosaur. It doesn't actually have a whole name of the species yet because it hasn't been published. Okay. So it hasn't got a binomial uh, no, zoological it, name No, it doesn't yet. have a zoological name yet, but... It weighs as much as 15 African elephants. African, wow. Yeah, African, not just your 15 Asian elephants. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and he's about 37 metres in length. Wow. So it was found in Patagonia and they have created a replica of it that is, that's in New York. So it's, it's all cosmopolitan now, this um, titanosaur. Right, so it's not, yep. so not officially named but already rampaging through New York. Not officially named but it is, it's yes. in the sauropod family which is your brontosaurus so it's and not, your diplodocus. So it's not an upright yep. Godzilla type dinosaur? No, it is not an upright Godzilla type. So everyone just... Stay calm. Right. All right. That is it for another episode of Lost in Science. We have looked back at we have looked back at history. We have looked at how WD forty was invented. We looked at how the Bunsen burner was invented. We have looked at how philosophy was reinvented, and we have looked back way, way, way back sixty-seven million years to to um, pregnant dinosaurs and the largest things that ever walked the earth. So far, until they find the next one. They're already calling it Titanosaur. What are they going to call the next biggest one that they find? Like um, Bigger than Titanosaur, Yeah, Magnificosaur or something. I don't know. Uh, Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australian Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us and tell us about your favourite dinosaur or your favourite piece of laboratory equipment or your favourite... Um, you know, uh, re- graduated Renaissance era <laughs> graduated <philosopher>. cylinder. <laughs> Gra- your favorite graduated cylinder. Your favorite um, hydrocarbon. Yeah, your favorite hydrocarbon. Um, your views on titration. Any of this? Um, please do. <laughs> you can email us at lostinsci at gmail dot com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on three CR. I think is our name, and you can find us on Twitter. Um, or you can just listen to us on the radio, or you can download our podcast. This kind of stuff, but. You can find us here at the same time next week when, once again, Claire, Stu and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.